1: I'm glad you joined, You chose to join with us this morning. A renewed hope in an old promise. A renewed hope in an old promise. We've been studying 1 Peter in our scripture. We're jumping ahead just a little bit. We'll be going back to it next week. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the second part of that verse, Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. So I have a couple questions for you this morning. What is it that you hope for? What is it that you desire? In those moments in your quiet time, you say, I just wish for this. Or I, I, I hope for this. Many of us have. We have hopes for our marriage, hope for our children, you know, hope for a future relationship, maybe for retirement, for pension, for things to be better. What is it that gets you up in the morning and face another day? I, I've shared this story before. I, I used to work in, a, in the corporate structure, and we had a CEO. And one day, one of our men asked him, what is it that gets you up in the morning? And the CEO says, well, what gets me up in the morning is that desire to maximize the profits of our stakeholders. Now, I don't know about you, but that probably doesn't get you up and going very much. You don't usually think, oh, I I want to just make uh, you know, the stakeholders, people, nameless people, make them, uh, you know, motivate them. That doesn't motivate most of us. What motivates you to keep on going, especially, though, when life gets difficult? And we've been studying about that a lot here in First Peter, about salvation through suffering, life through suffering. What is it that gets you going when life becomes difficult? When life is fun, when life is good, when, when things are going well, we usually don't need a lot of hope. Hope isn't really, we're living out our hopes, right? But what is it when you're sick? When something fails, when you lose that that's most precious to you. It seems like today, I don't know about you, but I think just getting a pulse of the United States, the world, as you look at social media, the newspapers, TV, so on and so forth, is that we live in a world of hopelessness. Religiously, culturally, politically, people are wondering what's the use. Like Pandora's box, we can feel hopeless. Do you know the story of Pandora's box? Pandora's box is an artifact in Greek mythology in which it contained all the evils of the world. In curiosity, a woman named Pandora opened that box and all the evils and emotions that are wrong flew out, leaving only hope inside when she shut it very quickly. Trapping hope inside sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes life can feel that way, hopeless or trapped. Yet even in this difficult world, in our stressful lives, hope still lives. Hope is a source of strength, the motivation. It is a goal or an end result. It's a dream. It's something to attain. It could be a better future, uh, to finish school. It could be to provide for your family or better for your family, a positive change in your life stability, a recovery, or maybe even healing in some type of fashion. But what exactly is hope? We use that word quite a bit. What is hope? Is it faith in myself or in some circumstance or something else? Is it something we can make happen on our own as, as an Olstein or those others that will tell us is it just about the power of positive thinking? Or is it all up to fate? Is it outside of our hands? Or is it just wishful thinking? Is, it, is hope recognizing that the outcome is totally out of our hands and we just hope that this happens? Knowing that no matter what we do, what decision we make, it's outside of our hands. One young lady at last year, as I asked this question, she defined hope as a feeling or state of being that one day things will get better. Let me read it. I think that's very good. It's a feeling or state of being that one day things will get better. Don't you feel like that sometimes? Man, I hope it's going to get better. But yet you wake up and we're in still the same mess. Life hasn't get better. In some respects, it's like watching the clock, you know, at the, in the old school, and, and just when it's getting ready to tick to 3 o'clock, all of a sudden the clock, instead of going forward, it goes backwards. You ever seen that little in you know, movies and other things? I, I've actually had that happen to me. It seems like all the clocks in my life seem to be just a little bit skewed. That feeling of state of being can be captured by that old phrase, one day my ship will come in. You ever heard that? Some of us are old enough that one day my ship will come in, meaning all things will work out, everything will be great. I'm gonna be taller, my hair's gonna grow back, and things are just going to be well. Well, that type of hope is hopeless. The fulfillment of our wants and our desires and our dreams and our aspirations must, listen to me, must be anchored, or it just becomes elusive and untainable. It's just like trying to swim out to something, but every time we're ready to grab it, the waves just take it just a little bit further outside of our reach. And we continually swim and swim harder and stronger, but yet as just as we're ready to walk, to grab it, the waves take it once again. One question that came to mind while asking others about hope was, are faith and hope something that's interchangeable or are they different? Sometimes we use the words similar. We say we have faith, we have hope, but what are they? And bring your attention to the screen, I want us to understand is that faith is not a belief in ourselves or others. You must understand when we say I have faith or keep the faith, these are all cliches that we share each and every day. Or have the faith, keep the faith, get greater faith. Many times we're not using it correctly or at least biblically. Biblically, faith is not a belief in ourselves or others, but it's a confident trust in the promises of God. It's faith is a trust in a person. It's in the faithfulness and the character of God Himself. Faith in me or someone else is really misplaced. It's not true faith. Well, hope, when we use the word, hope is again another biblical word. Hope is not wishful thinking, as I hope I get that job, I hope I get this, but it's a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. And many times you and I have the wrong type of hope. We're hoping for something, but yet the expectation, what it's placed in, again, is misplaced, is wrong. So hope is not wishful thinking, but it's a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. Just as faith is not wishful, blind leap of faith. It is something tangible. It is something that's anchored in something that cannot be moved, something stronger and greater than ourselves. Let me share with you that both of these are a gift from God. These are not something that you and I can conjure up within our own emotions or listening to a motivational speech or reading a book. There is not a test, personality test for it. There's not something that really you can train someone to do. It's something that God has given us. They are both a gift from God and they're based on the person and character of God. You see, people are hoping for a financial savior. Lord, I'm just just hoping that my ship will come in, that I'll make more money, that I can invest better, that I have a better pension. They're hoping for a political savior to make this world better. And we see that. That's so much of what's going on here is people are hoping for a political savior. They're looking for a relationship saver. saver. Find me that that special person or a career savior. Help me understand what I'm supposed to do with my life. Or maybe they're hoping for retirement or satisfaction. They're looking for something to quench that thirst, but yet they find themselves dry-mouthed and searching and wanting even more and more. Yet what you and I truly need is a Savior to put our faith and hope in. Not in a things, not in outcomes, not in opportunities, but our hope should be in a person. And this morning, I want to narrow down to three things that I believe encapsulates all our hopes. You see, what I believe that we truly want, the truly hope that you and I expect and desire, is one of restoration. We are aware that things are not as they should be. We get up in the morning and we see a broken world. We see broken relationships. We see brokenness all over our creation. The the, the world is just broken. We recognize that things are broken many times beyond repair. We desire healing and recovery and a better life. We desire mercy and grace. We are aware that we do not want what we deserve. We recognize that many times looking in the mirror, we are averting our eyes from eye contact with ourselves. Shame and guilt has many times ruled our lives or paralyzed us into submission and we're stuck. And we don't understand, why can't I make the right decision? Why can't I do what God wants me to do? It's because we need mercy and grace. We recognize who we are. We recognize who we really are and we do not want what we deserve. Many times running from our past, afraid of our future and embarrassed of our present. We desire something better than what we deserve. Then thirdly, the third hope that I believe encapsulates all that we hope for is that of righteousness and justice. We are aware very true, very real that evil exists. If not, you haven't been paying attention. Evil exists. We try to, we try to therapy it away. We try to dismiss it. We try to ignore it. But evil is here. It is in the midst of us. And we long for fairness and an accounting to make things right. Now, we would not use those words if I were to ask you, what do you hope for? You would not say restoration, mercy, and grace, and justice and righteousness, but I believe all the things that you're desiring, all those things, even of the fleshly nature, find themselves here. You're looking for a satisfaction for something. You're looking for that which will make you whole. Well, I want to share with you in the resurrection as we think of what Christ has done, his death, his burial, his resurrection, That God has given us three promises to hope in. Not hope for, but hope in. The first one, as we look here at the screen, is the promise of a Redeemer to restore all things. See, God knows that things are broken, and He's come to restore all things. So the, the promise of Scripture is a Redeemer to restore all that which has been broken. Genesis 3.15, you'll see it there. This is the first time the gospel is, is given. This is when Adam and Eve, they have sinned. And they're hiding in the garden from God. And God gives them and says, now sin is entered in. And here's the rebellion. And he's giving them the justice they deserve. But yet, as soon as he gives them a justice by giving them the curses and kicking them out, he leaves them with this early promise. God the Father said, I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, what he's giving us is the promise of a savior to restore that that was broken in the garden. All of scripture is one story telling us how God is restoring the garden. You see, what we, you and I need to understand that God is perfect and holy and you and I are not. We need everything to be restored, whether it's the creation, our lives, our relationships, it all sums up that it needs to be restored. The angels in heaven saying, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus tells us that our heavenly father is perfect, and scripture informs us that God created this world good, very good, but yet we recognize that it is no longer perfect. Pastor Milton Vincent in his Gospel Primer sums up the words of Scripture when he writes about God, that God is immense beyond imaginations. He measured the entire universe with merely, it says, the span of His hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of His perfections. He's absolutely righteous and holy and just in all His ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Listen to this. You must understand that every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in your body today is a gift from him to you. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you conjured up yourself. And some of you recognize that even more today, that every breath is a gift. And it's not until those things are taken away do we recognize it. But I I would call you today to understand. Every legitimate pleasure is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him and to his goodness. My life in every way is and will be completely, utterly dependent upon him in whom I live and move and have my being. And that this wonderful God, this creator, is the most supremely worthy object of admiration. He created us that we may look to him. We above all creation all creatures can look and worship and see that God is the object of our admiration and honor and delight in all the universe and he's created you and i each and every one of us with the intention that we might glorify him by finding our souls delight our whole our hope in him and by living in joyful obedience Him in all my ways. This is how we are created. Our hope was to be found in Him. He is our satisfaction. He is the one who's the bread of life and He's the one that's the water of life. Yet Scripture reminds us that you and I did not do so. We did not uphold Him as the object of our admiration. Even today, many of us are not looking. To God as the object of our admiration. He is not our hope. We're looking outside of Him for joy and satisfaction and happiness. Many of our desires are, are, are contrary to His Word, or we're looking to satisfy them outside of His promises. You see, our first parents rebelled against this holy, wonderful Creator. And Paul tells us in his letter to the Roman church that we too are guilty that we are without excuse for Adam's sin has been passed down from generations. We've shared the gospel throughout our service, through our scriptures and our songs. You and I stand guilty. The little baby just born stands guilty before God. There is none that are innocent before him. Like Adam, we have sinned. Sin's Adam's sin has been inherited by each and every one of us. It means that our nature and our attitudes and our actions are marred by a rebellion and a desire to be our own God. And I think if you were to truly consider this, you would see that it's true in your own life. Because of this, God's wrath is poured out righteously on all of creation, man, animal, earth alike. Hence why restoration is needed. Hence why things are broken. We are under the curse. You and I need a Redeemer to redeem us from this rebellion, to restore all of creation and God's promises to do so in Genesis 3.15. That is the hope of the Old Testament. It is the hope of the prophets, the Jewish people. and God fulfilled that promise when He sent His Son. And this verse you know, John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But it goes on to say, For God did not send in his, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. He is the restorer of all things. So what you and I have is a promise that God will restore that which was lost. That which is broken. So take a moment, consider what is broken in your life? What relationship? What things needs to be restored? In what way is, is, is your mind troubled? In, in what way is your, is your life in a mess? I don't know what you're searching to make that better and to make that right. But I tell you that it will fail. It may have some success. It may have some ways in which it does get better. But let me tell you, they will for the only one that can restore that which is lost is Jesus Christ. And he's the promise that he will do so. The second hope, if I could, is the promise to release his children from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13, if you're there with me, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, and this is one of my favorite verses, has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has given us a promise to release his children from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Think of all the troubles, the difficulties, and problems that you're experiencing in life today. Just take a moment to dwell on them. That'll take a a, a smile and turn it upside down, won't it? Where do they come from? Where do all these problems, these difficulties... whether whether it's something in financial and bad decisions, whether it's market, dictatorships, communism, whatever all these things that just make the world financially uh, just topsy-turvy, to whether we're coming to divorce and affairs and all these other things to the point of a Down syndrome child or children who die in the womb. What causes all these things? What is it that caused me to sin? What is it those things that make me desire the things that I don't want to do? Where do they come from? Why is there hatred and anger and war and temptation and sickness and death in this world? We're all trying to be better. We're all trying to be good. Pepsi makes it into commercial. All you need is a t shirt and a, and a Pepsi, and things will be better. That seems to be the world. They're trying to do what you and I desire so much. It's because of sin. It's because of sin. Suffering is a hallmark of life now. Now, all of us may suffer differently. And there may be some go through life, their life seems charmed. And you wonder, why can't my life be like that? But all of us bear the scars of sin in our lives. Even the one that you would look to and say, boy, I wish my life was like him. In his stillness of his moments, he could show you the scars of his sin. You would see a body broken and torn down and a mind just depraved as yours. We hope for relief. We hope for an end. I don't know about you, but I just can't wait for Christ to come. And I no longer have to fight with this body of sin. I no longer have to struggle with this mind that seeks to satisfy itself in the wrong ways. I desire a time when Christ will rule and there'll be no more political ploys, there'll be no more uh, dictators, no more wondering about nuclear war. Men and women who do not have enough food to eat, little children that are walking around with swollen bellies because they're famished. What you and I need, though, is not temporary relief, but a final solution. We need an end to the devastating effects of sin. When you look out this world, when you see these things, these are the devastations of sin in each and every man and woman. And this is the promise of God. The Apostle Paul writes that while we are in this tent, speaking of this body, we groan, being burdened, and that we know that the whole creation itself has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The problem is is that you and I need our sins wiped out. We do not need them judged by God. To be judged of God brings condemnation, brings the wrath of God, brings us to hell. And let me share with you, despite what you may read, despite what you may think, hell is real. It is a place of eternal conscious torment. So we need our sins wiped out. Not just covered over, not just, you know, a little bit of deodorant here and there. We need them wiped out. The solution here is found in Christ, who suffers and bears our penalty. For our sins are judged, but they're not judged on us. They're judged on Christ, who also earns our righteousness, all those good things that we need to do. In Ephesians 1-7, Paul writes that in Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. You and I can stand free now. Our guilt and shame has been carried and nailed to that cross. For those that accept what Jesus has done, there is no longer any judgment, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Amen? You and I can stand and listen. This is paid for by the blood of Christ. But forgiveness is not enough. You and I know that. We need both God's forgiveness and Christ's righteousness. Paul writes in Romans 5.18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam, so one act of righteousness, speaking of Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, God could forgive us of our sins, but that's not enough because you and I need to be made right with God. You understand this. When someone does something against you, do you forgive them? Well, you should, and you try your best. But what happens to that relationship? Is that relationship still the same? No, you understand that you're not going to trust them. There's something that you say, I may forgive you, but no longer is that relationship. same. But see, this is what God does. When Christ comes and bears our penalty, when he puts it all on him, God says, I forgive you all your sins, but not only that, I'm going to take what Christ did right, and I'm going to put it on your account. So when he sees us, he sees us as friends and as his children. He no longer considers us an enemy. Now, you and I have a hard time understanding because we can't do that humanly. But yet this is what God can do. This is the hope, the hope of being released from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Through Christ's obedience, we are made right with God. We are now free from both the penalty and the power of sin. You and I do not, are no longer enslaved to those old passions. We talked about this uh, earlier in 1 Peter, and I would direct your attention to our website where you can watch those messages, and I pray and encourage you to, to do so. We are no longer enslaved to the passions of our sins. We no longer have to be drawn to them. We now have the power to say no, to flee from them, to abstain from them. That's the promise and the hope that you and I have. That I now no longer am enslaved to that which had mastery over me. But one day, and here's my final hope, is that we will be free from this presence of sin, as I said earlier. Christ returns, he'll make us as he is. And no longer will there be any anger. No longer any, any power plays. No longer any cheating or deceit. That brings us to the third one. It's the promise of the return of Jesus Christ as king. To rule in righteousness and justice. We recognize that things are broken. Justice and righteousness are far from us. We say that justice is blind, but we know that that's not true. It doesn't seem to play out as we watch justice and righteousness. It seems like the wicked continually uh, advance and have their day, and while the others, those who are righteous or those who we think are good, seem to have life uh, drawing them down. But one day, he has given us the promise that Christ will return to rule in righteousness and justice. John chapter 14, Jesus gives this promise. Let not your heart be troubled speaking to his disciples and then to us. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do not despair. You may be orphans or you may be elect exiles. Now you may feel like you're orphaned. You may feel like you're left, but you're not. God says, I am coming back for you. Scripture tells us that Christ will come again. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. (laughs) One of the... I, this, is, this is beside the point, but I'm just going to say it as I give it. Has anyone ever here seen the, the, the uh, well, it's not new any longer, but the updated version of Last of the Mohicans? Anyone ever seen that movie? I love that movie. It's one of my favorite ones. Just the way it's done, the the, the, the backgrounds, the the, the the little dialogue actually works. But there's a scene where um, a Hawkeye is taking the, the British young lady and they're escaping the Indians and they wind up, in a cave, and he realizes, they both realize, that they cannot get any further, that he is not going to be able to get away with her. The Indians are right on him, and and, and they've already killed one person, so they know what what beholds her, if they get a hold of her, is not a good thing. But in the scene, they recognize he's not going to get away. And so they're kind of looking at each other. Now, this is is a great movie, but you can cut this out later on the the thing. It's really great, but in it, there's a powerful scene where they're, they're in that cave, the waterfall coming down, you could see it in their eyes, and he just looks at her and says, I'll come back for you. I'll come back for you. It's one of the most powerful, poignant scenes in that whole movie. When I first saw it, I just got chills because they were looking at each other's eyes and she trusted him. Knowing that these Indians, the Iroquois, were going to come and take her, saw that they had already killed the guy who was taking care of her, knowing that her sister is already taken. And life is not going good. He says, trust me. And they hadn't even met each other for very long. And he takes off. Of course, the movie is he, he gets her. Okay. But I say that because every time I think of this thing that Jesus is coming again, I just reflect back to that scene. I'll come back for you. Now, I might have got the word verbiage right, wrong, but that's what he's saying. I'll come back for you. And she trusts him. He takes off and leaves her to be captured by that. And it's great. Okay. All right. So here we go. Let me go back to number three. The promise of the return of Jesus Christ as king to rule in righteousness and justice. We see the scripture tells us that Christ will come again. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 11, I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has made, or he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in robe that's dipped in blood and by the the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, he goes on to write, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on on white horses. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Let me tell you, there is a king who is coming. His first time was on a donkey in meekness, pronouncing his kingdom. He was rejected, he was betrayed, he was tortured and killed, but on the third day he arose, amen? He went to heaven after 40 days, but he says, I am coming back, and this time it will not be on a donkey. I will come this time to judge. So what are you doing today? To find your hope in him is to find a king who will will rule in righteousness and justice. Well, not only will he come to rule in righteousness and justice, but also to renew and heal. If you're in Revelation, turn over a chapter or two to verse 21. Because not enough, I'm not looking for vengeance. We're not looking for people to get their due, but we're looking for righteousness. We're looking for justice. But also you and I are looking for healing and renewal. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe, listen to this, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying, nor pain anymore. For those former things have passed away. And he, he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. These promises are the Christian's hope. It is our motivation. It should be that which gets us up in the middle of the day. Middle of the day? In the morning? In the morning. For me, it might be the middle of the day. Some of you might be the middle of the day. It's what gets us up. It's what keeps us going when life is difficult. When suffering is seems overbearing these three promises that we you read about here find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ this hope is not in anything but in Christ these promises are not based on wishful thinking or a blind leap of faith our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you want to turn real quickly you may but first Peter chapter 1 these promises are not based on just intellectual facts, though that's a part of it. They're not based on fights of fancy or myths or legends. But 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 3, Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? See, our hope is not based on on anything but the fact that Christ's tomb is empty. To an inheritance that is, an, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. There is a hope for you and I. A full restoration. All things will be made new and right. The resurrection is unique to the Christian faith. No other religion claims that their leader, their savior, has been raised from the dead. Without the resurrection, Paul writes, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. For without the resurrection, our faith is futile. Our hope is based on nothing more than wishful thinking. However, God tells us that as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam died, as Randy said earlier, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul Measley Murray, in his book, The Message of the Resurrection, says this, writes this of the Easter Gospel. He says, in the first place, the Easter Gospel is good news because it proclaims that Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The Lord appeared to Peter and the other disciples. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He writes, in the second place, the Easter is good news because it proclaims a risen Savior. Our sins have been forgiven, and God has set his approval on the crucified Christ who was raised to our life and for our justification. He says, thirdly, the Easter gospel is good news because it reclaims a glorious hope. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We shall be with the Lord forever, for Jesus has brought life and immortality to life. And then fourthly and lastly, he says, and of no less importance, the Easter gospel is good news because it reclaims a present power. And this is where you and I reside. The risen Lord is present with his people today. Already in the here and now, we may begin to share in the risen life of Jesus. And that's the hope that I want you to share in this morning. This hope is here today. Even in our present moments of weakness, he writes, we may experience the transforming power of his resurrection. Here is good news indeed. The resurrection is more than just a past event and a future prospect, but it's a present reality it's the hope that you and I it's the burning in our chest that allows us to keep on going and praising our Savior in John chapter 11 (coughs) and I come to end with these words when Lazarus was dead his great friend Mary and Martha come to Jesus and said if you would have been here Lazarus would not have died Jesus said your brother will rise again And Martha said, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming back to the world. What say you? What say you? What's your hope in? Do you trust in Him? For you and I that have, He tells us now, that we're to live soberly and righteously in this present world, looking for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That'll put a spring in your step. Would you live in the hope of the old promises? For they have been fulfilled in Christ. Let me conclude with this. For the believer, the Bible commands us to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Do not waver those for you who accepted Christ. For he who promised is faithful. No matter what you're suffering, no matter what your situation, trust in the one who is faithful. God encourages us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Amen? Continue in the hope that you were called. For you who may be seeking, you do not yet know who Christ is, but you're seeking for hope, you're seeking for answers. Let me share this. Your response this morning to God's word is to repent and turn to Christ in faith. You too can have this hope. He can replace your hopelessness for hope. The Bible gives you the good news that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved and everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you do so this morning? Destin will be up here in a little bit and if you'd like to do so, you can come up and he can share with you fully how you can lead today knowing that you're one of God's children. There's no special prayer. There's no card you need to sign. You don't need to come forward in some type of penitent mode. You just need to recognize that Jesus is Lord. We would ask you to follow him today. If you're here and you say, you know, I I hear what you're saying, but I'm just not yet convinced. Would you do this at least for me? Would you just take a moment sometime this morning before you leave, just say, Lord, speak to me if you're real. Show me the resurrection of Christ. And then open your heart to God's word. And I pray that he would begin knocking and calling to you this morning. And for you that may be here, but you're a skeptic. You're not quite sure. Not really seeking, but just not quite sure. What is your hope based on? Scripture tells us it's appointed for man to die once. And after that, the judgment. But Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You may still have questions. You may be still looking for answers. But again, the hope for the believer is that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then one day we'll be face to face with God. For now I know in part, Scripture says, then shall I know fully as I have been fully known. The Apostle Peter writes that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest or made known, in the last times, for the sake of you who through him are believers, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Today I implore you to respond by trusting in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ to be right with God, A renewed hope and an old promise. For John says, I write these things that to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm going to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed as the worship team comes forward. This is just a time to pause, to consider, to pray, and to respond. What is it that God may call on you today? One of my old favorite songs is Because He Lives. The chorus says, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future all life is worth the living just because he lives. Father, I pray that you be with each and every one this morning. And I pray that you would open their hearts to receive your word. Lord, I pray that they would respond now to the Holy Spirit's work. For those that are believers, I pray that they would not waver, but continue in the hope that you have given them. And we just thank you and praise you for this hope. Lord, may it give us the spring in our step, the confidence we need to face each and every day, and even the battles of sin and the struggles and the suffering we face. For those that do not know you, Lord, I pray that you'd open up their hearts, that they may see, let them taste and see that God is good. May they come to know your salvation today. And for others who may be skeptical, who may doubt your word or doubt the resurrection, Father, I pray that you'd give them a moment in which they would see the glory of your Son. We praise in God, Christ's name. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkininfaith at orangevilla.org.